Good morning, and welcome to Woodside Church, whether you're seated here in person or you're online at home. First of all, Pastor Dan, my wife will be very happy that you made that general invitation to our house for lunch. We live just around the corner on Kingfisher. <laughs> we are continuing on in the series, What If Everything Jesus Said Was True? And we're going to talk today about life's biggest decision as we dig into the third chapter of John in the New Testament. When Pastor Dan asked me if I would be willing to preach on John 3, I wasn't really sure how to react. On one hand, I was really honored to be asked to preach on arguably one of the most important scriptures in the Bible. On the other hand, I thought about it and I thought, how are you possibly going to deal with John chapter 3 in 30 minutes? And then I thought that Pastor Dan perhaps came to that same conclusion. The book of Acts tells us the story of the Apostle Paul who went on preaching for on and on and on until midnight. In fact, he preached so long that a young man named Eutychus, he was sitting in a window, he fell into a deep sleep, fell out the window and died. It's all right, it ends well, take a look at Acts 20. But so that I don't put any of you into any deathly sleep, let's get going. There's much in John chapter 3, but I'm going to focus on two sections. I'm going to call the first one, Who Are You? And this is Jesus' chat with a Jewish ruler named Nicodemus. Who are you? And secondly, the verses surrounding John 3.16. I'm calling that section, Who is Jesus to you? So if you have your Bibles with you or your devices or you can follow along on the screen, we're going to start with a reading from John 3, 1 to 10. Who are you? Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? If you're not a Christian, you may have heard people refer to themselves as born-again Christians and wondered about this. This isn't some special division of Christianity. It isn't a, a special sect. In fact, you never find anywhere in the Bible where it explicitly refers to born-again Christians. What we are called is Christians. In Acts 11.26, it says, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. However, that concept of being born again, well, that comes from this scripture. And if you're perplexed, that's okay. So was a man named Nicodemus. Firstly, it's important to find out who Nicodemus was. Well, we read that he was a Pharisee. And these Pharisees, were they, they were really influential religious sect at the time Jesus walked on the earth. They were known for their piety. That means they were really religious. They liked to follow rules. And in fact, the Hebrew word for Pharisee means to be separated. 
They accepted the written law that we find in our Old Testament today, and they believed that all Jews, Jews should follow the 600-plus laws that are in the Torah. The Pharisees were mostly middle-class businessmen and leaders in the synagogue. Numerically, they were the minority in the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was kind of the equivalent to our parliament. They were a minority in the, in the number of, of priests, but they seemed to control the decision-making there, and scholars believe that's probably because they had popular support among the people. In the Gospels, the uh, books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Pharisees often come up, and it's rarely in any good light. They're presented as hypocritical and proud opponents of Jesus. And in fact, in Matthew 23, 3, Jesus bluntly says, they do not practice what they preach. They were self-righteous, they were delusional, thinking that they were pleasing God because they kept the law. However meticulous they were in following these rituals, Jesus said, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. So that's who the Pharisees were. How about this Nicodemus guy? Well, we know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the 70-member Jewish ruling council. And in our passage, the Scripture uses a definite article in Greek. Yeah, I know that's really geeky, but it's saying, you are the teacher. So many scholars agree that he was likely the highest-ranking teacher in the entire nation. He was the man. This means that many scribes and teachers would likely come to him when they needed answers about the rules, what's necessary to be considered righteous as a Pharisee. So not surprisingly, Nicodemus slinks up to Jesus in the night very quietly, i.e. he didn't really want much fanfare. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Well, what was he referring to? Well, when we look at the Bible, we find that Jesus performed many miracles in front of the religious leaders in broad daylight. In Mark 2, we find four men who came with a paralytic friend, and Jesus healed him, and then he walked away. In Mark 3, the Pharisees watched as a man with a shriveled hand came to Jesus, and Jesus healed his hand on the spot. And what was their response? Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. There's many other times where they watched Jesus perform miracles. And interesting, they, they never questioned the legitimacy of the miracles. They always asked, but by what authority is he doing this? By God's or by Satan's? You know, I've always wondered, how could people have not believed in Jesus when he walked on this earth? Think about it, how he taught, his incredible knowledge, his wisdom, his love, and then these incredible miracles, doing it right in front of them. I've often thought, well, what if miracles were commonplace today amongst us as Christians? Well, surely everyone would believe. Clearly not. Jesus walked on the face of this earth himself, and many did not believe. But Nicodemus was different in fairness. He recognized that this teacher was not the same. He acknowledged that he came from God. And what was Jesus' response to Nicodemus? If we go on to verse 3, says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Say what? It doesn't seem like really a logical response to Nicodemus um, commending him, complimenting him. Why was that? 
Well, firstly, Jesus wasn't big into fanfare. Pastor Dan preached on John 2 last week, and if you go to the end of that chapter, you find Jesus was at the Passover feast, and he performed many miracles, and it said, many believed. And Jesus' response? But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Notice that Jesus didn't get distracted by Nicodemus's compliments, his acknowledgement. That's something I know I can easily do. Instead, Jesus dove down into the root of the matter. He knew what was in Nicodemus's heart, and he knew what he needed to hear. Recall Nicodemus's upbringing as a Pharisee, as this teacher. It was all about doing. What can I do to be right with God? But in fairness to Nicodemus, his response was, at least from a worldly perspective, pretty reasonable. He says, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus responds in verse 5, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So what does born of water mean? and born of spirit mean. The latter, born of the spirit, is probably a little easier to understand because salvation involves this, this new creation that can only come from the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But what did he mean by being born of water? Did he mean that we needed to be baptized? in order to be saved? I'd say that's not likely because baptism isn't mentioned anywhere in this context, nor did Jesus ever imply that we had to do anything to earn salvation. But rather, we just had to trust in Him, which we'll talk about a little later in John 3.16. Water baptism is an outward sign that we've given our lives to Jesus. It is not a requirement of salvation. Okay, so what could it mean then? There's a number of schools of thought, and I'd like to bring up two. One of them, born of water, could refer to a physical birth. Unborn babies float inside a sack of amniotic fluid for nine months. When the time of birth comes, uh, the sack of water bursts, and the baby is born in a rush of water, entering life as a new creature. I had the privilege of watching our four children being born, and I will never forget the rush of water. The birth, therefore, would be kind of paralleling being born of the Spirit, as we see this, this similar new birth occurring within our hearts. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. The baby contributes no effort to the birthing process. All the work is done by the mother. Well, maybe a little by the dad. I did some hand-holding, and I did some <laughs> you know, the breathing. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have any of the mothers here agreeing with me. The work was done by the mother. Likewise, in spiritual birth, we are merely recipients of God's grace, and He gives us new birth through His Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. So that's one perspective. Born of water means this physical birth. The second is a spiritual cleansing. 
something that actually Nicodemus probably more easily understood. With this view, born of the water and born of spirit are really the same thing, but one is a metaphor and the other one is literal. When Jesus said, you must be born of water, he was referring to a spiritual cleansing like Nicodemus may have understood from Ezekiel. If we read Ezekiel 36, 24 to 25, it says, for I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Nicodemus, as the preeminent teacher of the time, must have understood this concept of water representing this purification. Whichever perspective makes sense to you, whether it's being a physical birth or this physical cleansing, what's key, what's important to recognize is we contribute no effort to the process, but instead we're simply recipients of God's grace. Jesus continues by talking about entering the kingdom of God, that being how can you have a relationship with God here on earth and into an eternity. Back to verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. How should, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You know, when Nicodemus heard these words, they probably had some additional um, meaning to him that we can't appreciate in English. Apparently, in the ancient Greek, Jesus was using a really clever play on words in verses 7 and 8. The Greek word pneuma, a modern-day word for us would be pneumonia, from the same root, can be translated several different ways. One of them is spirit, and another one is wind, depending on the context. So when Jesus was using these words, it probably reminded Nicodemus of another chapter in Ezekiel 37 where it talks about the wind blowing over dry bones and bringing them back to life. In verse 7, Jesus said that Nicodemus should not be surprised. You know that flesh and spirit are opposed to each other, so the only way to take on a new nature is to be born again. We don't know how this works, just like we don't fully understand the wind. We don't understand the gusts or the direction. In the same way, the spirit isn't something that we can completely understand. And clearly, Nicodemus didn't understand, because when we go to verse 9, he says, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. And Jesus' response, ouch. Look at verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, remember definite article, said Jesus, and do not understand these things? Remember, Nicodemus was likely the man in the Sahedrin. He was the modern day equivalent of the number one politician slash priest slash professor, all rolled in one. If the scribes and the teachers had a question that couldn't be answered, it likely stopped at Nicodemus' feet. And Jesus used this opportunity to throw maybe a little salt in an open wound. As my father often said to me, when I was a 17-year-old that knew everything, Roland, you know nothing. <laughs> Jesus goes on in verses 11 and 12 to, Nic to challenge Nicodemus a little further. He says that he testifies the truth of what he knows and sees, but he and the, the rest of the religious elite, well, they don't accept it. 
He tells Nicodemus that he's speaking of really basic things. If you don't understand this, how are you going to understand heavenly things? And now as we move on to John 3.13, we can call this section, Who is Jesus to you? Jesus gets real practical with Nicodemus, and he gets real practical with each and every one of us. So reading from John 3.13 to 21. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Again, Nicodemus would have understood that reference that they made there to Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness. In Numbers 21, we hear about the Israelites. They were wandering around in the desert for quite some time. And once again, they were complaining to Moses for taking them out of Egypt, taking them there to die. They were complaining about the food that he had provided for them. So God sends venomous snakes, and many of them died. The people repented and asked Moses, hey, please, please go to God, pray to us, pray for us, and for God to help us. So God told Moses to build this bronze snake and put it on this pole. And anyone who lifted up their eyes to the pole would live, to the snake. Nothing but death awaited them unless God provided the remedy. Jesus was letting Nicodemus know and he was letting each of us know that outside of a remedy from God, death awaits each and every one of us. And as the Israelites just needed to look up to that snake on the pole, the remedy for us is to look up to Jesus and believe. And this leads us to arguably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, that verse on its own is beautiful, it's powerful, but many people read this verse and they ask some reasonable questions. But why are we perishing? You know, God created this world. Why would he create a world where we would perish? Why would he condemn us to death? It's for that reason that I think is really helpful when you read John 3.16 to read the next two verses as well, 17 and 18, because God answers that very question. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. I found over the years that many people depict God as this monster. How could a loving God do what he does? How could a loving God allow what he allows? 
I've often thought about it. I said, if he really is that, if God is this cosmic monster, why would he put up with us? Why would he put up with me? After all, by and large, we're a, a country that, that doesn't accept God, that doesn't want anything to do with him. In fact, we use his name rather than any other name as profanity. The world generally mocks him and generally mocks those that who wholeheartedly follow him. But what was his response? What was God's response? He became man. He sent his child to this earth. Jesus was mocked. He was insulted. He was beaten. In fact, if you look at the book Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, I would highly recommend it, we find out that he was beaten so severely. He was beaten with wood wood pieces that had nails in it, and it actually tore the back of his flesh down into his organs. He was so severely beaten that he was near death before he was even put up on the cross. The soldiers nearby, they mocked him, they divided up his clothes, and Jesus chose not to call down the legions of angels. God chose to simply watch. Is that what a ruthless cosmic monster would do? How many of us would stand by idly if that was happening to our children? I know I couldn't. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God created a world with mankind who has free will, who has a choice, How is it possible to love without a choice? And at the beginning of time, Adam chose to sin, and sin entered the world. In Romans 5.12 we read, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in the same way death came to all people because all sinned. But, in verse 15 we read, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass by the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Sin entered the world through that one man, but we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, the really good news, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He had one primary purpose, and that was to be a living sacrifice, to take on the sins of the world. God so loved the world, he so loved you. Now, did Nicodemus ever get it? We're never really explicitly told as we go on, but his name comes up again. If you go on to John 7, when the Pharisees were accusing Jesus, he reminds the Sanhedrin. He says, the law requires a person to be heard before they are judged. And then he finally appears at Jesus' crucifixion where he provides the really expensive embalming spices and he he assists Joseph of Arimathea in preparing the body of Jesus for burial. It sure sounds like Jesus left a mark on him. But how about you? How does John 3 have meaning in your life? If you are a follower of Jesus, then John 3 represents who you are. 
You are a born-again Christian. You are to be known as such. You've got many roles in life, but who you are, your identity must be a Christian. Few people here would know this, but I was very involved in politics when I was a young man. I studied political science at university when I was a teenager in the 80s. I was actually the assistant to the national campaign chair for one of the big political parties. I traveled around to all the major nomination committees. Um, I would hang out with the who's who of the political elite. I was a political junkie. After graduation, my first job, my boss was equally involved in politics, albeit for one of the other parties. So we had a great time throwing out political barbs at each other, debating every possible issue. We enjoyed, desire, we enjoyed winning arguments. We also liked it if we could sway some of the interested listeners our way. One day I stood outside of a room and I heard two ladies talking about me. One was new and really didn't know me and said to the other, I hear Roland's name coming up all the time. Who is Roland? The other lady said, oh, he's the conservative guy, the guy that's always going at it with Gary. I was devastated. As a Christian, I was not known as a Christian. I was known as the conservative guy, always going at Gary. I repented on the spot, and I said, Lord, this is going to change. And it required me to extricate myself from political life. As a really, really important aside, don't take this as any slight towards anyone, any Christian involved in political life. If you are involved in that, God bless you. I have incredible respect for you. If that is where God has you. We've had and we have so many members right here at this church or members in this community, Christians, that are serving in public life, and it's wonderful. Bless them. But if that is you, it must never define who you are. You are a Christian first. We're called to be heralds of the good news. That's laid out in John 3. You know the great commission that Jesus left the disciples with and leaves all of us with? Matthew 28, 19, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. But what are you a disciple of? Are you a disciple of being physically fit and being healthy? Pastor Dan mentioned, I'm all for that. I agree with that. But I am not a disciple of that. I've already talked about not being a disciple of politics. I am not that. How about a disciple of government truth? Perhaps you can be a 9-11 truth teller. A lot of crazy stuff there. Or Area 51, what's going on there? Or how about more relevant today? Are you a disciple of vaccines, whether you're for them or against them? No, that is not what we are called to be disciples of. While well-intentioned, while you might be heralding truth, if your voice is more closely associated with any of those other things, then you're off the mark. Our voice must be associated with being heralds of the truth. The greatest message possible. The good news that changes lives, that changes generations. Remember that Satan can never take away your salvation, ever. John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. But you know what Satan can do? He can sideline you. 
He can detour you. He can distract you from proclaiming the good news. If he's done that, he has successfully distracted you. Today is the day to recognize that and to make a change. And how about if you're seated here or you're seated at home and you once were a follower of Christ? You had a personal relationship with him, but you chose another path. You've tried those paths, but on those paths you found no joy, no peace, no satisfaction. You missed Jesus. Well, you know what? This is the day to recognize what was important. This is the day to invite him back into your life. Perhaps you're seated here and you've actually never made a decision or you're sitting at home. You've never made a decision for Christ. You do not have a personal relationship with him. Then this is the most important day of your life. Revelations 3.20 says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You might be saying, Well, if Jesus wants me to follow him, he better be blowing some serious trumpets or bring a big big battering ram and just batter down that door to make his presence known to me. But he won't. He will persistently and lovingly knock. In Romans 5.12, we read, sorry, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, In its heyday, I want to talk about a painting, the one that we have right here. The light of the world was created by English artist William Holman Hunt. This painting was probably more famous than any of the works of the great masters of the Renaissance. In 1904, it was seen by millions of people on a world tour. The painting illustrates the scripture that I just read from Romans 3.20. Jesus is carrying a lantern and knocking at a door. The door is overgrown with weeds, the nails and the hinges, they're rusted, implying that that door has never been opened. Apparently, when Hunt first revealed this painting to family and friends, one of them sheepishly pointed out that Hunt had forgotten to paint the door handle on the outside. The artist simply replied, oh no, I didn't forget the handle. When Jesus knocks on the door of your heart, the handle is on the inside. Jesus is standing outside of your door knocking. And perhaps he's been knocking for many, many years. And you've either refused to acknowledge it or just refused to open it. Maybe you say, I can't be a Christian. Oh, look at my life. I am in no place to be a Christian. I can't live up to that. You know what the beautiful thing is? Jesus isn't asking you to change a thing. He isn't asking you to become something before he walks into your life. He isn't asking you to do something, fix something. The Apostle Paul wrote the following in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We gain eternity with God through faith not by anything we do on our own merit. It's simply receiving this free gift from God, a gift that he won't shove through the door, a gift that he will give you if you open that door. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
That door opens when we admit that we're a sinner. We acknowledge that Jesus is the only way, that He's the one that takes on all of our sins and washes them white as snow. When we do that, we become children of God. In John 1.12 it says, Yet to all who did believe in Him, to, to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So what's it going to be? Is this the day where you're going to acknowledge Him? Are you going to acknowledge that undeniable knocking? Is this the day that you're going to answer the door and open it? I'm going to pray now, and if you've never prayed a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart, and you feel this is the day, you just feel Him stirring in your heart, I'd encourage you to pray along with me in your heart today. Jesus, I thank you for your indescribable love. I thank you for loving the world, for loving me so much that you sacrificed your life on the cross. Thank you for taking on all of my sins. I recognize I'm a sinner and I can't do anything to earn this. But I understand that I can accept this wonderful free gift and I ask you to be the Lord of my life from this day forward. Amen. If you're here today and you prayed that prayer along with me or maybe you've rededicated your life or something else has stirred you, would I encourage you to reach out today today? 